That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm producer and host of this podcast, and today we will be interviewing Daniel Hirsch of the Committee to Bridge the Gap on the nuclear accident at the 1959 Santa Susana Field Laboratory, as well as a hot-off-the-presses update on what's going on down at San Onofre. We will speak with him shortly. Today is Tuesday, May 8, 2012, one year and 58 days since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11 of 2011. And here is the latest nuclear news. In Japan, thousands of Japanese marched to celebrate the switching off of the last of their nation's 50 nuclear reactors this past Saturday. So Japan is without electricity from nuclear power for the first time in four decades. It happened after the reactor at Tomari Nuclear Plant on the North Island of Hokkaido went offline for routine maintenance on Saturday, May 5th. Since last year's March 11th quake and tsunami set off the meltdowns at Fukushima Daiichi, no reactor halted for checkups in Japan has been restarted amid public worries about the safety of nuclear technology. The activists said it is fitting that the day Japan is stopping nuclear power coincides with Children's Day because of their ongoing concerns about protecting children from radiation, which Fukushima Daiichi is still spewing into the air and water. In Japan, on May 1st, more than 70 Japanese civil organizations banded together to draft and send an urgent request to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon for the UN to organize a nuclear security summit aimed at brainstorming on the crucial problem of the Unit 4 spent fuel pool. The organizations also requested that the UN establish an independent assessment team on Unit 4, which would coordinate international assistance in order to stabilize the unit's spent nuclear fuel and prevent radiological consequences with potentially catastrophic consequences. That was a direct quote. At the same time, TEPCO has taken the week off for the Golden Week holidays, which extended through May 5th, saying through their press spokesperson that the company, quote, does not have much work on the premises. Last Friday, May 4th, Physicians for Social Responsibility presented an historic press conference in New York with Japanese and U.S. medical personnel and nuclear professionals presenting information on the current radiological health conditions and concerns in Japan since Fukushima nuclear reactor catastrophe. Uh, Hirokai Koide a nuclear reactor specialist and assistant professor at Kyoto University Research Reactor Institute, said that as of March 15, when the explosion occurred at number four, that the spent fuel pool was caused to tilt. He said, I am worried right now that if the pool falls down, there is a great danger of a large amount of radiation being released. He also said that even taking low estimates, the amount of cesium-137 that is contained in the number four spent fuel pool is roughly 5,000 times the amount of cesium-137 that was released during the Hiroshima bombing. Also from this press conference in New York, Dr. Junro Fus, internist and head of Koshugi Medical Clinic near Tokyo, said that according to numbers given by the Japanese government, the amounts of radioactivity in a town called Nihonmatsu are 300,000 becquerels per square meter. Nevertheless, this town has not been designated as an evacuation place. 
He said that this is one piece of evidence showing how the government is undermeasuring the radiation, and this fact has not been reported by the Japanese mass media. Also from Dr. Fu's, there are hotspots even within the Tokyo metropolitan area that have actually already led to physiological problems. Some of the disorders that have been observed are diarrhea, nasal bleeding, headache, and eczema. We are expecting thyroid disorders in children, but also cancers of the bladder, leukemia, lung, as well as diabetes. The entire press conference is shown on a site, cinemaforumfukushima.org. And if you're interested in the full information, which is very rich, I suggest that you go to that site and check it out. We'll have that, that address also on nuclearhotseat.com. Connected with this, just as an illustration of what's going on in Japan, Japan, the mayor of Futaba, which is a town about 200 miles north of Fukushima, has reported in an interview, I'm losing my hair and have nosebleed every day. The other day I asked for blood tests at a hospital in Tokyo because I'm exposed, but they refused it. There is even no treatment or proper inspection. Medical checkup for Fukushima citizens are not detailed enough either. And in case you were feeling secure about the situation in Japan, today, May 8th, there are at least four earthquakes that have hit Fukushima, the top one being a 4.8, a 4.7, and it went down to a 4.2. All of these are shaking the land with the nuclear reactor, including the spent fuel pools. Here in the United States, uh, the battle over the San Onofre nuclear power plant uh, has been heating up. Southern California Electric announced plans that they will open Unit 3 at San Onofre on June 1st, even though they will be required to run it at 50 to 80% of capacity for the rest of its life, not 100%. Uh, this is the unit that had a ruptured tube in it on uh, January 31st with a what they are labeling a minor or inconsequential radiation spill. Now, as of May 7th, a statement from Nuclear Regulatory Commissioner, Commission Chairman Gregory Yasko, he said, despite some erroneous reports in the media, there is no NRC timetable for the restart of the San Onofre nuclear reactors, which have been shut down over safety issues affecting the steam generators. We have yet to receive the utility's written response documenting their completion of actions described in the March 27 confirmatory action letter, so any discussion of a date for the restart of Unit 2 or Unit 3 is clearly premature. Once we receive their response, we will take whatever time is necessary to conduct a thorough safety review. And in late-breaking news, Edison has just today disclosed that it had to plug, that it's going to have to plug 1,317 steam generator tubes, which is four times as many as they initially announced. Uh, we will be speaking a little while from now with uh, Dan Hirsch about that because he was actually quoted in the article. Other information on um, nuclear uh, reactors here in the country that are having some problems, that as of May 1st, a slight, put that in quotes, leak was found at North Anna, which is the nuclear power station in Virginia that was very close to the epicenter of last year's earthquake and was shaken to more than two times its design specifications. According to plant infection it, it, officials, a close inspection of North Anna showed a slight leak and gasket failure, but neither issue was actually caused by the earthquake. 
So in other words, it was leaking even without taking the earthquake into consideration. I don't think that's been worked in their favor. Now here's a new name on the horizon. The NRC has launched a special investigation and inspection at the Chiron Harris nuclear plant located less than 25 miles from downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. They are trying to figure out why a pair of safety valves failed to close at the facility while it was shut down for refueling. The problem at Chiron Harris could have jeopardized lives and equipment if the plant's pipes had burst and blasted scalding steam onto equipment and plant workers, as has happened at other U.S. nuclear plants. This NRC special inspection is much more involved than a routine review. Moving on to food safety issues, Washington State Department of Health officials are testing fish to determine whether they are contaminated by radiation. They are planning on collecting the returning salmon and steelhead because there is public concern about the safety of these fish, and they are going to do so until the concern abates, according to Mike Pretty, who is manager of the Department of Health's Environmental Sciences section. Clams will also be tested, even though there's no evidence that clams swam anywhere near the nuclear reactors at Fukushima. This is another food safety um, uh, report in that Vital Choice Wild Seafood and Organics has decided to address the growing concern for, for potential radiation affecting the nation's seafood. It has contracted with an international food testing service to test their wild Alaskan salmon and North Pacific seafood for radioactive elements to make certain that all their seafood products are, quote, completely safe for human consumption. The harmful radioactive isotopes, primarily cesium-134, 137, and iodine-131, according to their press release, they were not released in, here's the wording, almost every case. If it's almost, perhaps it means that it was released in some of the cases. The trace amounts that may have been present in rare cases, again, notice the semantics, fell below levels detectable with current technology. No word if the tests are to be ongoing. Daniel Hirsch is a lecturer on nuclear policy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and president of Committee to Bridge the Gap. In 1979, he was lecturing at UCLA, and his students there discovered the covered-up nuclear meltdown at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory in the hills of Simi Valley, 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles. Since then, he's been directly involved with the legacy of that site, as well as one of the strongest spokespeople on the problems at San Onofre. Dan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Let's start with this new news that's out today about uh, San Onofre. There seems to be a bigger problem there than Southern California. Edison initially let us know. It seems as though the San Onofre reactor's steam generators are just falling apart. When the... A single tube burst several months ago. Edison said it was just one tube and that no radiation was released. The next day, NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, had to say, yes, radiation was released. And by the way, the other center for unit had been down for repairs, and they had found 900 damaged tubes in one of those steam generators alone. There are two steam generators per unit, two units. And then we were told that about 300 tubes, 321, had been plugged, taken out of service. And then uh, a week ago, it was 509, and today it is 1,317 tubes. That's about 
of all of the tubes that they have inside the steam generators. And there are more damaged tubes that still haven't been plugged. And they're only permitted to plug up to 7 or 8% and still be able to remain at full power. So in other words, they are patching the pipes in the nuclear reactor in the hopes that the patches are going to hold, like on a like on a bald tire or something? They are plugging them so that they no longer function. They don't remove them, but they seal them off. And it's essentially like um, plugging up pieces of your radiator, hoping that the rest of the radiator that's not plugged will keep cooling the car. And the fundamental problem is that steam generators are the primary coolant barrier. They are the barrier between the very radioactive primary coolant water and the outside. And if they burst, the radioactivity can be released, and you can lose your coolant, which can, under certain conditions, lead to a meltdown of the reactor. Very important feature of a reactor, critical. They have to be very strong, these tubes, and at the same time, they have to be very thin in order to transmit heat. And those two factors work against each other, and they are now thinning beyond what they were originally built as because of some unknown cause of vibration. It's potentially very dangerous, and it's troubling because these steam generators, uh, one of them is only a year old, the other is 22 months old, and you should not be seeing this kind of damage um, for decades. So how feasible is it with their recent announcement that they're planning to start up? It was either going to be June 1st or June 15th. Well, these are two different questions in terms of feasible to do it safely and feasible to be able to get, let the NRC tell you you can do it. Um, it was a rather extraordinary statement by Edison. Um, what Edison said is that they were going to report in mid-May to the NRC what they think is causing this, and then they hoped to start up two weeks later. And the quote from the Edison spokesperson was that it will take two to four weeks for NRC to approve what um, Edison wants to do. It wasn't even contemplated that the NRC would say no. Now, the reality is, over the history of the NRC, it almost never says no to what a utility wants. But still, the idea of rubber stamping um, this within two weeks was quite shocking, enough so that NRC Chairman Yasko had to kind of chastise uh, Edison for having made the suggestion. But we, there's tremendous pressure within Edison to get those reactors up and running. There's spending half a million dollars or so a day on replacement power. The cost of the um, repairs and, and inspections are talking about about $100 million. Uh, if they have to replace the steam generators an additional time, it could be about $8 billion. And at some point, it's clear that that is all money that is not worth um, wasting. So what are the chances that this set of difficulties being revealed and being ongoing with uh, Edison is going to lead to the ultimate shutdown of San Onofre? Well, I think Edison obviously doesn't want that. It's going to come up with some theory whereby it can start up the reactors, run them at lower power, and hope for the best. The problem is the steam generators may not cooperate. They may not uh, buy into the theory that Edison has about what's wrong with the steam generators. So uh, they may be able to start up at reduced power in June. The NRC may well give them a carte blanche. Uh, they'll then have to shut down after a few months and see what's happened inside the steam generators. And at that point, all bets are off because it's quite possible that they'll have more damage. They had wanted to run for another 30 or 40 years. They wanted to get relicensed in a decade, run for a decade, and they get relicensed for 20 or 30 years. And it's not clear now that at the rate that the steam generators are falling apart that they can run for even a year. 
we will stay on top of that story and, of course, be checking in with you on that. But I'd like to switch over to our planned topic for today, which is your involvement with the discovery and the ongoing attempts at remediation for the Santa Susana Field Laboratory, which is in the hills of Simi, about 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles, certainly not far away from where I live. First of all, just give us a little bit of background, how you and your students at UCLA first became aware that there was a nuclear accident that it seems nobody had ever heard about. There had been a long report in the mid-1970s by Dorothy Boberg and Irving Lyon for Another Mother for Peace, looking at nuclear Los Angeles. And in that long report, there was about a page or so about the Santa Susana facility and the mention that there had been some kind of an accident, but that they had been unable to get the records pursuant to Public Records Act requests. So I had my students go into an annex of the UCLA Engineering Library and try to find these missing records because the man who had founded the Atomics International Facility, what we now call the Santa Susana Facility, Chauncey Starr, after the meltdown in 59, the partial meltdown, and after a second accident in the 60s, uh, went to UCLA to become Dean of Engineering and apparently brought with him large numbers of the technical reports by the Atomics International Facility and put them in the engineering library in a back annex. We requested the records and indeed found, uh, one of my students comes to me, or one of the students comes to me and says, look at what we found. There was, uh, it was called Metallurgical Aspects of SRE Fuel Element Damage Episode. Very boring topic. But they opened up these fold-out photographs and the photographs uh, were of melted nuclear fuel. There would be a label saying undamaged fuel, another label saying radial cracks, another one saying longitudinal cracks, and then a, a label that said melted blob. Very complex. That's a very technical term. And at that point, we quickly understood that there had been a partial meltdown of a reactor in Los Angeles that had never been made publicly known. The Atomic Energy Commission and the company that operated the facility didn't even tell the press that there had been anything that had gone wrong at the site for five weeks. And they issued a press release embargo for Saturday morning papers, one of the rules of trying to bury a story. And the caption of it, that press release said, parted fuel element observed at Atomics International, no safety concerns. It wasn't a parted element, it was melted. It wasn't a single element. A third of the fuel at the reactor experienced melting. It certainly was unsafe. This was one of the worst nuclear accidents to date. They went on to say that there had been no release of radioactivity to the environment, and at the very moment that the press release was issued, they had been venting radioactive gases into the atmosphere for, for weeks. And there wasn't a so, containment building there, was it? It was just an industrial shell. That's right. Um, you don't have the containment structure, that dome that you associate with San Onofre, for example. It was simply a typical metal-thin walled building and beyond that, the reactor itself was designed so that you actually had to vent the radioactive gases from inside the reactor into the atmosphere because the pressure would build up otherwise. So it was really an extraordinary accident. And, um, about a year earlier, Edward R. Murrow, the famous television news broadcaster, had been brought out by the Atomic Energy Commission to do almost a promo piece for nuclear power when the reactor started up and temporarily provided electricity to the Southern Cal Edison grid so that the town of Moore Park could get lit up for uh, the television special. 
And then a year and a half later, the reactor had this partial meltdown, and they, of course, never told Edward or Merle he might want to come back for a follow-up. This is more than 50 years ago. And the extraordinary thing is after two supposed cleanups by the Department of Energy and its contractor, uh, now Boeing, in which um, they said that they had cleaned up all the contamination, the U.S. EPA in the last few months has found substantial amounts of cesium-137 and strontium-90, two very important radionuclides, at the area where the meltdown had occurred. What I had read is that they said that the levels were in places up to 100 to 1,000 times. They were a little vague here. It sounded like higher than background or higher than normal. Yeah, they had contamination as high as 1,000 times background, and that is also 1,000 times the cleanup level the Department of Energy has agreed to for the site. So those are pretty high levels. Uh, it's 196 picocuries per gram, and we normally see background at about 0.2. So that's about 1,000 times higher. Pretty remarkable. So what are the current plans to clean up the site, and how successful do you think this cleanup will be? I'm afraid it's completely up in the air. In December of 2010, the Department of Energy and NASA, which owns part of the property and contaminated it with all sorts of chemicals from the rocket test, both of them signed legally binding agreements with the California Department of Toxic Substances Control to clean up their mess to background. That means any contamination that they created that they could find, they would clean up. It was a precedent-setting agreement. People had worked for decades to achieve it. It was uh, pushed by the Schwarzenegger administration and uh, finally signed in its last weeks in office. But since Jerry Brown has come into the governor's office, Ironically, a Democrat replacing a Republican, a Democrat who, when he was governor before, had been an active opponent of licensing the Diablo Canyon reactor, had actually intervened to prevent it. But the new Jerry Brown is trying very hard to prove he's not the old Jerry Brown. He's very close to Boeing's lobbyists. Several of those lobbyists are former aides to Brown when he was governor before and major contributors. And ever since Brown has come into office, the uh, cleanup has been placed in jeopardy. So the biggest risk at the moment is that NASA has been taking steps that they assure people do not violate the agreement, that they are committed to the agreement, but have caused many people in the community to have questions as to whether or not NASA is going to live up to its agreement. If NASA breaks out, DOE may well do the same. How worried should local homeowners, people in the community, be about their proximity to this site? First of all, worry does no good. It actually adds to your health risk rather than reduces it. Secondly, the, we don't have good answers to the fundamental question. People who lived in the area in the 50s and 60s, who lived close to the site, may well have received exposures from the partial meltdown in 1959 or the 1964 accident or the... 30,000 rocket tests, some of which used exotic and pretty toxic materials. They may have been exposed by the years and years of burning illegally radioactive and, and chemically toxic materials in open burn pits where that smoke would then fall out in the area around. But around 1990, the community, with our help, was able to get the Department of Energy facility shut down the nuclear work really remarkable accomplishment. I believe is the first time that um, a community has been able to shut down an unsafe DOE nuclear facility. And then the rocket testing finally ended a few years ago. 
So the greatest exposures were likely in the past. The issue is, is there some residual contamination off-site? The answer is almost certainly that there's something, but the answer, question is, is it much? And how does it compare to the exposure you would get by living deeper into the smog zone of the Southern California Air Basin or living near a freeway exit where um, asbestos from brake pads or lead from when we used to have lead to gasoline or living near the Elsa Gunner refinery. I mean, we don't have a pristine environment, unfortunately. And so, uh, yes, rocketine contaminated the, the area, its own site, and some contamination off-site. We don't know very much how much, but uh, th there's no smoking gun that indicates that there's something huge that should make someone more worried than they might be if they lived near uh, a refinery or Lockheed facility. Uh, each of these uh, industrial entities in our society put people at some degree of risk. So how feasible would a complete cleanup be for the site? It's really fairly simple. The U.S. EPA has been tasked with doing radiation measurements at the site. And any place that they find that is contaminated, Farm Energy is supposed to clean up. And the cleanup is pretty primitive. It means digging up the contaminated bit of soil, putting it into a truck or a train, and shipping it to a disposal site. There is, of course, nothing actually that you can call cleanup. You're basically moving contamination from one place to another. But you're moving it from a populated area where it's out in the uh, environment and can readily spread to a facility that is designed at least to retard its migration and that has a much smaller number of people in the region. It's not a great solution. It's, uh, you know, the old Watergate line. It's uh, once the toothpaste gets out of the tube, it's very hard to put it back in. These companies and these agencies were immensely irresponsible in dumping all of that contamination into the soil and the groundwater. You can clean it up, you can dig it up, you can transport it to a waste facility, and that's what would be done. But we would have been vastly better off had these um, powerful agencies and companies behaved ethically and responsibly, and they didn't. What can we do, especially those of us living in proximity, to push for a better action or a more complete action regarding Santa Susana? People can contact Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein immediately. They're very troubled to hear that the Obama administration may be waffling on its commitment to clean up the site and ask the senators who are instrumental in getting those agreements to force the agencies to live up to their commitments. That would be very helpful. You can just go online to their uh, websites and probably send in an uh, email or other kind of communication or call. The senators have some power to be able to force the agencies to not break their word. And how can we best support you? in the invaluable work that you are doing on behalf of um, Nuclear Sanity? One can go to our website, which is simply www.committeetobridgethegap.org. That's committeetobridgethegap.org. You'll find all sorts of information about what we've been doing recently. There's a way to contact us to get on our email list and on our regular mailing list. We don't inundate you with material. You'll get something, in, um, a newsletter, once or twice a year and uh, occasionally urgent action alerts. So that would be uh, a good way of getting involved.
Dan, I want to thank you so much for being on Nuclear Hot Seat again. Dan Hirsch is a lecturer on nuclear policy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and president of Committee to Bridge the Gap. Thank you so much for your information. Thank you. And now on to some international activist news. The People's Movement Against Nuclear Energy, PMAIN, in India, has today launched three campaigns against the Kudankulam nuclear power plant that is being set up amidst the strong opposition of residents of the region. Collection of signatures by villagers who oppose the nuclear plant and surrender of voter identity cards will be observed in 60 villages belonging to three neighborhood districts, while Respect India campaign will be observed throughout the country. According to Mr. V. Pushparayan, a member of the Struggle Committee, just as the freedom fighters asked the colonial rulers to quit India, we, the People's Movement Against Nuclear Energy fighters, request the corrupt and communal ruling class in India to respect India, respect the Indian citizens' lives, rights, and entitlements. About 20,000 voter identity cards from nine villages were already collected, and 30,000 people from 13 villages have signed against the Kudankulam nuclear power plant. In France, a nuclear reactor in Bouguer, which is in central France, was bombed last Wednesday, May 2nd. Smoke bomb, that is, and it was done by a Greenpeace activist. This individual flew a motorized paraglider onto the grounds of a French nuclear power plant, and he dropped a smoke bomb on top of it. According to a Greenpeace spokesperson, the purpose of this action was to send a message to the two candidates in the French presidential election who are denying the risk of nuclear power. There's quite a dramatic picture of this going on, including the smoke coming up from the top of the reactor, and it will be posted on the Nuclear Hot Seat page. For holistic healing this week, it's not so much on healing as it is on gaining accurate information that can guide us in making our choices. Professor Christopher Busby is concerned that some of us with radiation monitors may be getting artificially high readings. In response to some Facebook communication on the subject, he wrote, I would ask someone who is doing windshield swipe measurements, this is where a windshield is wiped down with a square of a paper towel, and then that becomes the basis for the measurement. I would ask someone who is doing these windshield swipe measurements to also take a swipe from the ground and see what they get. I am concerned that cars are insulated from the ground and can build up an electric charge which will create radon and radon daughters, which are variations on the isotope. So continue to take your measurements, but be careful how you do so. There is enough to be frightened about regarding radiation without being concerned in places where we don't have to be. So as a final thought, from the May 1st, 2012 edition of the Corbett Report comes this quote from President Obama, which came from a, an interview that he gave on March 27th of this year. I want you to pay specific attention to the one word he does not use, the N-word, as in nuclear. The president said, this is a direct quote, there are still too many bad actors in search of these dangerous materials, and these dangerous materials are still vulnerable in too many places. It would not take much, just a handful or so of these materials, to kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people. And that's not an exaggeration. That's the reality we face. He's acknowledging the danger, but not the source, because these dangerous materials are the nuclear 
materials which are needed in order to create nuclear weapons that can be exploded against us and that would take out hundreds of thousands of innocent people. So President Obama, let's get rid of the source of these dangerous nuclear materials. Decommission the power plants, switch funding to renewables, and put the money into researching how we can safely store, if not neutralize, these dangerous radioactive materials, which are created as a byproduct in the spent fuel rods of every nuclear reactor. To assist you in doing this, email and phone numbers to the President, as well as the Nuclear Regulatory Commission commissioners, and a link to a site where you can find contact information for your senators and congresspeople will all be posted on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. It will be included in the link to the download of this podcast. So in closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 8, 2012. You can find us syndicated to airprogressive.org, streaming web radio, posted on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog, on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page, and the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat group page, and you can subscribe on iTunes podcast for free. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I'll speak with you next week. <laughs>